right. Hey, let me, uh, let me start off with this. Let me say uh, hello and thank you, and it's good to see you. All right, so for uh, the ones that uh, are at the limited, the limited seating at just three of the locations, thank you for uh, everything from wearing masks to uh, getting your temperature checked when you walked in, all that stuff. Uh, for the 95% of our church family that's watching online, thank you. And, and thank you, and also, it is great to see you, but thanks also for continuing to be the church. You know, gathering is, is super important, but gathering is not the church, all right? Gathering is super important, and we'll see that. Uh, but the church is more of a movement, and you all throughout these last, I guess it's been 11 weeks, have done a phenomenal job of being the church, all right? I've tried to share that each week, uh, whether it be on online messages or Facebook Live or whatever, but everything from food drives to blood drives to uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars given away, both here in Western North Carolina as well, is uh, still keeping up, making sure that those kids in Ecuador uh, are taken care of when other places are just like abandoning all of that stuff. You all have done a phenomenal job of that, all right? And uh, as we regather, it's not really reopening. That's actually something that's wrong. It's, we, we hadn't been closed. You all have, I mean, the church, you all have been the church. Uh, if one thing that's going to remind us of that again is uh, this week, uh, there's going to be a thousand pair of uh, Nike shoes are going to be given to some families in need. If you remember, uh, you all provided a Christmas basically for a thousand families in need around Western North Carolina. Those same families, we said, hey, we want to build relationships with you. We're going to come back. And we had to delay it a little bit with all the uh, COVID stuff, but this is the week where those will be distributed, okay? If you want to play a part of that. I know a lot of us were like, man, I'm so tired of of looking at the same people in my home where I gotta do something for somebody else. This is a great thing, not just to bless people, to bless you. If you wanna be a part of that, believe it or not, just text the word SHOES to 28282. We'll get your name and get you a place where you can go bless somebody else, all right? So great, uh, great job on being the church. So we say this every time, take your Bibles. Take your Bibles, turn to Philippians 2. That's where we're gonna be here in just a few minutes. And it is, without a doubt, one of the top two or three mountain peaks in all of the Bible. But let me try to set the stage a little bit of kind of tying last week into this week. Uh, we had a revelation in our house about four or five months ago. And here's basically what the background was, is uh, for years, my wife and I have been married for three decades, all right? And for three decades, uh, the assumption had been uh, that she was a right-handed person. And the reason was, is she, we would always try to, I would try to teach her because she didn't grow up doing a lot of the sports that, that I got to do. And so she would have a tendency to go like this. She would throw and like she would step with the wrong foot. And I was trying to like, no, you step with the opposite foot when you throw. And man, she would try super hard and it just like wouldn't smooth. And it's just like, it's like, and finally one day I just, there was something over there by her and I was like, hey babe, would you pass that to me as a pencil or something like that? And she just very gracefully just picked that thing up flung it to me, perfect pass right there. And I was like, wait a minute, tossed it back to her. I go, do that again. She picked that thing up, tossed it to me, perfect. And I'm like, you're left-handed. You are left-handed. And sure enough, I'm like, here, throw this. And I gave her a ball and she's like taking a perfect spiral. I'm like, here's a baseball, man. She threw a slider at me like 91 miles an hour. I'm like, you are left-handed. And so what, I, what it was is the opposite of what she had always done. The opposite of everything in her said to do it one way, she had to do the opposite of that. And that's what I thought of when I thought about all the opposites in the Christian life. There's so many. I mean, Jesus says what? Die to yourself if you want to live, all right? Find rest if you attach yourself to this yoke, all right? And then last week was if you, if you really want to be exalted, then humble yourself. Then humble yourself. And last week 
When we kind of started this little section in Philippians, what we talked about is if you want grace to pour out on your home, on your marriage, with your spouse, with your kids, uh, on your business, then believe it or not, you have to actually do the opposite of what we think. What we think is, I've got to make this happen. And what God says repeatedly through the scriptures is, listen, you humble yourself and I will exalt you at the proper time. He actually says, I will oppose the proud, but I will pour out my grace on the humble. And so what we are in now is we are in one of those places in the scriptures that again, is one of those almost too holy to kind of just pick apart. It's, it actually is a poem. It's an early church creed. It's an early church hymn. And as we look there, Philippians 2 is where we're going to be. And let me just give you a, a, a head start on this. Uh, this is a super a heady, I hate, I hate this word. It is a thick part of scripture, okay? I mean, it is not, this, it is not like a junior varsity section of the scriptures. It's, it's not. It's just we're going to have to go kind of like down deep for about 10 minutes and then we will get to the parts like, oh, now I see how that uh, affects my everyday living. But please hear me, it is, it is definitely worth it. And if you got your Bible, this is the place where you're gonna underline it. I'm gonna use a few words. We don't usually do it. And that's just, that's kind of part of what it is. What I want you to keep in mind is, even as we're going through this thick stuff, it is about relationships. You're like, how do you know that? Because on the front end of it and on the back end of it, it's talking about how you and I treat each other. The first four verses says, you know what? Here's the way you treat each other. You put other people in front of yourself. You consider their stuff before you consider your own stuff. Really easy stuff you can do all the time around your home, right? Easy stuff. But then what he does is he, is he, pulls, he pulls the card and says, let me show you the prime example of what that actually looks like. And so as we work through this, just understand this does download. There's nothing about the Apostle Paul, about abstract theology disconnected from the trenches of real life. So this passage, although it is super high, well, I'm just going to call Christology, it downloads into life and into your relationship. So again, 10 minutes, I mean, you caffeined up, hopefully 10 minutes, we're going to go there, a little bit technical, and then we're going to land the plane and say, okay, here are ways that it actually shows itself when the way we live and work and play. So what we do, we're Bible church. We just going to go through the Bible and here's what we're doing is we're going to, I'm going to read a verse, make a few comments, read another verse, make a few comments, read a verse, make a few comments. So here it is. Uh, verse five. All right. Here's, here's where it starts. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now that word mind means your disposition. It means your posture. It means the way that you look at your spouse. It's the way that you look at your coworkers. It's the way you look at your people in your connect group. He's like, you need to have this kind of disposition that he's just talked about. But then he goes varsity and he says this, though who, though he was in the form of God, we're going to come back to that. That's a little confusing. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. All right, listen to me, especially if you're like a connect group teacher. I remember a seminary prof years ago said, listen, he goes, he goes, fellas, even in your first pastorate, he goes, understand you are the resident theologian in that town. And what I want to tell you is you and for a lot of people, you are the resident theologian for them. 
And these next two verses are as key about theology, which is just your belief about God, and even more specifically, your Christology, which is your understanding about who Jesus is, as any verses in the entire Bible. And so let me kind of break them down just a little bit. And verse six, again, is a start of an early church hymn, or way we would call it is almost a creed. Remember what they would do is when they would get a letter, they'd be a church that, you know, have like 30 or 40 people there. This is before the church exploded into all over the world. They would read a letter like a scroll and they would read it out loud. And so I'm going to come back to that. The idea that they're reading this poem, this hymn, this creed, he says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. All right, let's, let's go, let's dive. First dive, first deep dive. See the, see the little phrase, form of God, form of God. I use the ESV. There's a bunch of good translations. I use the ESV. This is the first time I've seen that the ESV is probably a little bit, it's not incorrect. It's just a little bit confusing because when you think form and I think form, I usually think of just something kind of on the outside. That's really not what form is. The phrase here is morphe theo, morphe like metamorphosis, theo, which is God, theology, okay? And so what he's saying is this is the idea of he is the essence of God. Not just the outward form of God, but he is, I think some of your translation says, in the very nature God. This is the strongest possible way in that language he could say that Jesus is God. It is the deity of Christ. In other words, Jesus has the identical qualities that make God, God. In the very being God. So again, we're not going to talk about the Trinity necessarily tonight, but just understand this is Orthodox Trinitarian theology. Okay. One God in three distinct co-equal persons. And this is important just so you understand because a lot, let me break this just even before we get to the main thing. Let me break this down because a lot of people teach that Jesus was a great man, a great moral teacher but they react very, very strongly when, and sometimes even violently, when you say that Jesus was God. And the reason that that happens is because when you start talking about Jesus being God, then that is inherently very threatening. Because if Jesus is just a created being, then he's just kind of a good moral teacher. Even if he's like a super good moral teacher, he's just like a good moral teacher, just like moral teachers have been down through the, through the ages. But if Jesus himself is divine, then, then God, if he's God, then his rules are altogether different. It means that he's the center of everything and everything is measured by him. There's a book called The Basic Christianity. It's an old book by a guy named John Stott. And he had a great point. He said this, he said, nobody in the scriptures ever quote liked Jesus. Think about that for a second. Read through the scriptures. Nobody in the scriptures liked Jesus. Jesus. He said, nobody liked him. Now you go to downtown Asheville, or if you go down, down Franklin or wherever you're going, there's a lot of people in the West now that we like Jesus. Like he's a good dude. He's a good guy. I got nothing against Jesus. You do Jesus. I do this, whatever. But in the Bible, nobody just kind of liked Jesus. There's basically three reactions in the scriptures of Jesus. Reaction number one is, is, uh, they hated him and they wanted to kill him. Reaction number two was they were scared of him and they ran away. Reaction number three is they were, um, they were smitten with him and wanted to give their whole lives to him. But believe me, nobody just kind of like, I like Jesus. That, that wasn't even a choice that he gave them or that you see. And so a couple more verses of the thick stuff. 
He says he did not count equality with God. Equality with God is basically saying the same thing as in the form of God. He didn't count the equality he had with God a thing to be grasped. It means to be, uh, it means to hold on to violently. It means to cling to. It means to use to his own advantage. Verse seven. Now here's where it gets crazy. And this whole thing, theologians got books on this about what this one word means, just so you know. I know you don't want to, you know, you're, you're not like a, I mean, there's not a bunch of Bible nerds like me, but I'm just saying that word right there, there have been volumes written on what that one word means. All right, it's the word kenosis. So you have these whole books about the whole kenosis theology. What did Jesus do when he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men? I promise you we're going to get to how does this, what is it, what about me? Understand, understand this. It says he emptied himself. Please hear me, very precise here. He did not empty himself of his deity. He was still God. He emptied himself of some of the prerogatives and the advantages that he had as God. And I'll list some of those in a minute. But he said he came in the form of a servant. So this is where it's super key. When somebody's like, Jesus never claimed to be God. The church didn't claim he was God. That's baloney. Jesus did a ton of times in the Bible. As a matter of fact, there's a couple of great articles about all the places where Jesus claimed he was God. He forgave sin. He's the one that said, I am. The Father and I are one many, many times. But this is an early church creed where they are saying this. He says, what did he say at the first? He said, the form of God, form of God. Morphe Theo. Now he says he came in the form of a servant, and that is Morphe Doulos, Morphe Slave. Same thing. So, what does that translate to? It means that Jesus was not a 50 50. He wasn't half God, half man. He wasn't 99% God and 1% human. He was not 99% human. I mean, this is a big one today, especially kind of in the new age deal. Jesus was not like 99% human and 1% God. Like, well, Jesus was like a good teacher with a little spark, a little crystal of divinity in him. That is not what the Bible teaches. He was 100% God and 100% man, all right? The word that we use around Christmas is the incarnation. Incarnation Carne is just the Latin word for flesh. It means in the flesh, all right? God came in the flesh, the incarnation. That's what he's talking about here. And when he laid that down, what was the emptying? There's some stuff we don't really know for sure, but here's some examples. He voluntarily laid down some prerogatives. For example, Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus was omnipresent. He could be anywhere at any time, all places, all times, anytime, all right? When he was here in his 33 years, he limited himself to being in one place at one time. That would be the idea of emptying some of the prerogatives. Uh, God is omnipotent, all-powerful. God up in heaven, the pre-incarnate Jesus, he did not need to have somebody bring him sonic. He did not need to have any kind of uh, drink. He didn't need to have any of that. But now, what did he, in the Bible, it's clearly he got thirsty, he got tired. All those things, he laid those down. Now here's where it gets wild. Just think about the big meta-narrative of this whole thing. God creates, I mean, in 30 seconds, here's basically the story. The story is God creates, he creates male and female to be vice regents made in the image of God. Male and female, we rebel against our creator, no matter how amazingly benevolent he was, we rebel against him. And instead of like most rulers crushing, crushing the enemy, what does he do? Verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death. And then almost like a extra on this poem, it says, even death, even death, even death on a cross. So obedient to the point of death. Just understand Jesus laid his own life down. It was not It was not something somebody took from him. John chapter 10 says, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. So let me just, to understand what he's getting at here, let me just paint a picture. We don't understand it in the West that well for this reason. We don't live now in an honor-shame culture. Back then, when the Philippians were, and today the places of an honor-shame culture, places maybe like Southeast Asia a little bit, parts of Africa, parts of the Middle East, honor-shame culture. In Philippi, it was an honor-shame, honor-shame society. What an honor-shame society is, is that the ultimate aim in life is honor. It's honor, it's not money, it's not how many likes you get, it's not how many followers you have, The whole point of life in that culture was to be honored and the biggest failure and the biggest fear in an honor-shame culture is not poverty, it is shame. It's shame, it's not even death, it's being shame. And what he's getting at here at the very end, he says, even death on a cross, he is saying that the God, the God came down here not just as a servant, is he came down here and he died at the epitome of shame and that's on a cross. Now we don't have time to dig all into that, but just some reminders about the picture of the most humblest thing that God actually did is dying on a cross. Roman citizens were not even allowed to be crucified. They're like, man, that's too, that is too bad for any Roman citizen to actually go through that. Cicero said this, He said, it is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is a wickedness. To put him to death is almost parricide. What shall I say, though, of crucifying him? So guilty in action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough that you would be exposed to that torture and nailed on that cross. Basically, the Persians invented it, but the Romans perfected it. The whole point of the crucifixion was not just to kill somebody, it was to dishonor somebody and to put them to shame. As a matter of fact, the word crux from crucifixion uh, actually is the idea, more than likely the Philippians, that's what they spoke, they spoke Latin. But the word crux was a cuss word in that language. And so they didn't even say it, they're like, don't say that, I'm gonna wash your mouth out with soap. The Jews themselves even believed. What did they, be- they believed that, you know what, if somebody died in the crucifixion, you, you are cursed of God. You are cursed of God. If you go back there, they had this whole honor system. I was gonna show you, I couldn't find a slide that actually would be legible, but look up sometime the cursus honorum, which is basically these ladders of office. At the top was like a senator and all this different stuff. At the very bottom of the rung, the low rung on the ladder was a servant. It was a servant. And so all that to say, here's how he ends it. And then here's what it is for us. He says, therefore, therefore, in other words, God's going to redefine honor. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. That's basically saying there's no corner of the universe that is untouched by the rule of Jesus. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, one quick last thing in here. What's, I, didn't, I didn't even know this. 
I didn't know this till this week. What Paul is doing is actually quoting part of Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah 45. When he says, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, he takes Isaiah 45 and says, everybody will do that to Yahweh, the God, and what he does is he, repla- he takes Yahweh out and puts Jesus in there. One more indication that, you know what, he's talking about the deity of Jesus. And so again, one of the things we can do, church, is this, it ain't about you, it ain't about me, We all need that Copernicus moment when we realize the world doesn't revolve around us, right? When you get to that point, you can exhale because not everything has to go perfectly for you to have a good day. You know why? Because it's not about you anyway. You don't have to have the green lights line up perfectly. You don't have to have the most awesome meal. You don't have to have everything go well if you just understand it's not about me. Now, as we say all the time, Jesus is for you. He is for you. You don't die for somebody you're not for. It's just not about us. And so from creation all the way to consummation, it's all about Jesus. All right, one more context, one more contextual statement, and then we'll do this. Can you imagine being in that church? Now, that church right then, if you were here the first week, we saw who the founders were. The founders of that church was uh, a CFO named Lydia. It was a demon-possessed girl. We don't know her name. And it was a blue-collar Joe screwdriver that worked at the jail. That were, those are the found, they had nothing in common except Jesus. And so they're sitting there, and this is probably 30 or 40 years before the gospel just explodes and tons, I mean, it just goes crazy. Right now, this church probably has 50 people in it. And Philippi was a very patriotic city, very patriotic. You had retired military there. And the thing that they had to say was this. They had to say, Nero is Lord. Nero is Lord. Nero is Lord. Or the emperor is Lord. Caesar is Lord. They would have to say that. Can you imagine these 30 or 50 people sitting in Lydia's backyard? And they're reading, they're getting this read to them from the apostle Paul. And it's saying, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they're saying this and they're realizing, you know what? Jesus is Lord, not Nero. All right. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. All right. Nero will bow at Jesus's feet. And so you're like, as a church, what does that mean for us? I mean, here we are 2000, 2000 years later. And we talk about what's the church supposed to be about and what's the mission of the church and how do we plug into that? And we've talked about our, our goal is to bring glory to God. And as I read this, I'm like, all the three things that we talk about, we've talked about for a decade. Now we have talked about a decade now. What we do as a church is we bring glory to God by making disciples who basically do what you see in this text. So the first one is this. We call it reach up. Tonight I'm just gonna call it gospel-centered worship. Just gospel-centered worship. This section that we just read is a hymn. It's a creed. They sang it together as they gathered together. This is the fuel of the church and it's the fuel of the Christian life. It is. It's the fuel That's why I said the church is not a building. It's not a building, all right? It's not a building. It's not, it's a movement, but gathering is super important. And part of that gathering is worship. And that has two spots. Personal, that's super important. Me not growing up in church and me not learning about the church and God's plan and his economy for a couple of years, actually, after I came to Christ, I didn't really realize it. So I did personal worship. And personal worship is super important. My biggest joy is when I see somebody who comes to our church and they come to Christ and then they re- maybe they came from a real liturgical background and nobody ever told them or they told them the opposite that they could actually sit there and read their Bible and understand it and God could talk to them 
And they could pray to God and they didn't have to go to a priest. They could actually talk to the God because Jesus is the high priest, the book of Hebrews. And then they could actually sing to God and God would delight in their singing. That is awesome. But as awesome as personal worship is, man, there is nothing that can replace, even in the scriptures, the collective worship of God's God's people. I mean, look, Psalms, if you read the book of Psalms, it's mainly a congregational collective. One example, Psalm 95. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And here's what happens. Is all week long, all this stuff gathers on our heart. It just gathers on our heart. Man, you just get this stuff. I mean, you, you gotta go to work. You gotta go to places maybe you don't wanna go to. You see stuff, you're just about, and all this stuff gathers. And one of the things that church is supposed to do and congregational worship is supposed to do is to kind of flush all of that stuff that has gathered on our heart. And so, uh, I think I told you a little bit, but uh, I have a diesel truck. And this is the first diesel vehicle I've ever had, all right? I've had a few that sounded like one, but I've never had a diesel vehicle. And so my biggest nightmare has been, man, especially like the first you know, little while I had the truck, I was like, don't put anything but diesel fuel in this deal. Don't do it. I mean, a couple times I got close, I'm like, don't do it, don't do it. Because my fear is, man, if I put the wrong fuel in this truck, I know it, it's gonna jack the whole thing up. I mean, it's gonna mess with the fuel injectors, it's gonna hurt the engine. It's going to cost a ton of money if I put the wrong fuel in there. And so hear me, most of the week, we got a lot of wrong fuel, whether you want it or not, a lot of wrong fuel that's getting put in our system. And if all you do is put wrong fuel into your system, you'll do just like a diesel truck would. You will start to break down. It will become very expensive. You won't run well. But if you put, if I put this diesel fuel in there, that thing's a horse, man. It is a horse. I mean, it's got, I don't know how much horsepower it's got. Toes like 12,000 pounds. I mean, it is all my testosterone goes up sitting in the truck. That's what happens. Point being is this when I put the good fuel in there, that truck operates awesome. It has longevity, it gets 30 miles a gallon. Same thing with you. So here's what I want to do we don't, we don't worship God. We don't worship God because He had a tough week. We worship God because when we praise God, He meets us where we are. There's some stuff God promises collectively that does not happen and does not get promised individually. I'll give you one more verse on this and we'll go to the next one. There's an old, there's a verse that a lot of you memorize maybe in the KJV. The KJV actually was the easier one to memorize in this particular verse. And that's, that's the one that's, it says, uh, God inhabits, it's Psalm 22, three. It's God inhabits the praises of his people. Uh, ESV, I think, says, you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. Now, enthroned, we know what enthroned means. Enthroned means somebody is sitting down. If you walk into a room and everybody is standing up and one person is sitting down, you're going to realize, you know what? There's Whoever's sitting down and everybody's standing up around him, he's pretty important. She's pretty important right there. In the same way, God's saying, you know what? I'm enthroned, somehow I'm enthroned on the praises of my people. Somehow, some way, everybody's standing around, people are praising God, and what happens is somehow, some way, I mean, this has happened 20 times. I mean, I love church. I mean, I should, I hope I, I love church. But sometimes, some Sundays, man, it's just like, man, I don't wanna go. 
I mean, come on, don't look at me like that. You all, some of you all do the same thing. It's like, man, I just, you know, don't want to go. Look at all those people that go in the lake and, I mean, it's just confession time. It's like, man, they're going to the lake or they're, they're what? That, I want to do that. And uh, I tell you what, though, come in here and, man, I bet you, I bet you, I don't even get through the first song. I don't know if it's Raise the Hallelujah or Yes, I Will or What King Is This? And all of a sudden it's like, man, I'm glad I'm not on some stupid lake. I'm glad I'm praising the person who made the lake, all right? It just, the perspective changes. It just changes. And you're like, man, I don't know where my joy is. There's a lot of emotions in worship. You got fear, you got grief over your sin, but the predominant one is joy. And here's my challenge to you. Because some of you are like, I'm a bad singer. So am I, man. It's like, I'm a bad, bad singer. God said make a joyful noise, all right? Not, not a melodic noise, right? You're a bad singer. That's what, we don't have you up on the platform, all right? You're not gonna lead us up here. You're not gonna sing a solo. But God wants to hear what you think about him. And somehow in the process of that, God gives you back a lot of grace. And I would just tell you, try to turn it up a little bit. I know we come from all different backgrounds and you came from this. and Just turn it up a little bit. If you're like used to not even singing, then sing. If you're used to singing and not thinking about the words, then think about the words. If you're used to singing with your hands in your pockets, just get your hands out of your pocket. If you're used to having your hands at your side, maybe kind of, yeah, you know, get them up here a little bit, all right? If you're used to doing this, just touch down Jesus. I mean, that's all you gotta do is just push it a little bit more from where you are right now. Here's my only, my promise is this. I promise you will not get up to heaven and go before God Almighty and then go, man, you are way too fired up down there. I mean, you just needed to settle down that worship. That'll never happen. It just will not happen. Will not happen. So again, that's one, you get your joy back that way as well. But uh, let me skip through the next two real quick and we're gonna close it out. Here's, here's one you see implied in there. Gospel-centered community. I mean, look at, look at verse one, chapter one. He says, written to the saints, that's plural. All these first chapters are plural. They're plural. And we've hit this a few times. Clayton hit it hard a few weeks ago. Basically is this, who do you have, who do you have that you are pursuing a Christ with? Seriously, who do you have? Now, some of you have done an awesome job in this whole COVID thing. In the last 11 weeks, there've been 400 people on, online that have clicked, connect, I wanna connect. Connect group teachers, you've done a great job trying to herd, herd cats, trying to keep everybody on a Zoom call. Great, great job with that. But again, who are you, who are you pursuing Christ with? All right, two things. I know some of you watching, you've tried it and you're like, you know what? It, I, listen, don't romanticize connect groups. Now, it starts off for us, connect groups, then it goes to like D groups and David's men, stuff like that. But connect groups is like king. Two things about it. Some of you have tried it and you quit because you over-romanticized it, okay? You thought, I was gonna go into a small group and they were all gonna be like wonderful, awesome, spirit-filled people who didn't do anything wrong, nothing. And you got in there and somebody disappointed you. Well, bro, just understand, that's gonna happen, all right? It's like riding a bike. I mean, it's hard. You're gonna ride a bike, you're gonna fall down, you're gonna skin your knee. You just get back up on the bike so you can learn how to do it. Don't over-romanticize it. These are people, flawed people just like you. And then second one, I've, I heard this the other day, and almost, uh, almost, almost uh, anyway, he's like, those other people aren't as serious. People, are, I didn't go to that connect group because they're not as serious about the Lord as me. It's like, oh, well, thank you, my friend, for letting us be in your presence. That was like awesome. Was like, Here's my deal to that person, all right? 
and not as serious, then hey, be patient with us. Right? Be patient with us. Humble yourself is what verse four says. Put our interest in front of yours. That's what a leader does. That's what a mature person does. Says, you know what? Uh, you are more significant than me. That's what verse four is. Matter of fact, go ahead and do this now. And you, if you're watching at home, you can do it. You might not want to do it to your kids, but it might be good as well. But just right here, right here, spread out everywhere. Just look at the person, even if they're like, like a row over, just look at them and say, and this will be hard to say, just say, you are more significant than me. One, two, three. <laughs> All right. Um, try that one more time. There was a little bit murmuring there. One, two, three. I mean, that, I just, doesn't that taste like gravel coming out? I mean, it just tastes like, you are more significant than me. That's the challenge, all right? And let me give you this last one, and then we're going to pray. Uh, you can't forget this. Here's the deal. Um, Gospel-centered mission, did, 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 you, did you catch? Because we kind of rejoice, but did you catch the last couple verses? He says, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. That's not universalism. That's just the reality that people can embrace Christ and repent and embrace Christ by faith now as Savior, or they will bow in eternity as judge. One thing we can, listen, heaven's gonna be awesome. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Man, it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be awesome. I'm gonna sing good. Um, some of y'all gonna sing better too. I've heard you. So it just, it's gonna be great, all right? The best worship service you've ever been to is gonna be just terrible compared to what's in heaven. Your fulfillment, all that stuff. But we gotta always keep in mind the one thing we cannot do in heaven is win men and women and boys and girls to Jesus. We can't do that in heaven. We have now, all right? We have now. We have now. That's when we have. And over the last few years, we've been able to see some amazing things. And even during this COVID deal, you all have done an awesome job. You've not stopped being the church. You've continued to be the church. Great job on that. Again, I mentioned earlier, you've just been very intentional. The biggest ones are the stories just coming from, hey, I did this with my neighbor, all these individual stories, awesome job. And again, awesome job on those things we've done collectively. Food drives, tons of money toward people that are going through a difficult need. We have no idea how many bridges have actually been built into our community in this Terrible, crazy time right now. But here's what I would say. When we run to the mess, when we run to the mess, when we run to the hurt, when we run to the need, all we're doing is we're just doing what Jesus did for us. And he's up there, what's the first verse says? You know what? Morphotheo, God emptied himself. Morphedulas. And so what does he ask his people to do? He asks his people to do the same thing. It's like, you got all these layered privileges down, humble yourself, not just by the way you treat people, but by the way you treat your city, by the way you treat your neighbor. Here's a prayer that I ask you to pray. Just, it's a dangerous prayer. I mean, I don't know when this thing's gonna get back to normal. I don't know. I mean, normal, normal? <laughs> normal, normal might be 21, all right? But it'll get a little more normal, little by little. But here's what I would pray. Why don't we just think about the summer? Once you pray, and just pray, I'm gonna give you a second here. Just pray a dangerous prayer. Just pray, God, would you use me to lead one person to Christ this summer? 
I've got tons of emails about parents leading their kids to Christ, and that's awesome. So maybe that's for you. God, would you help me to lead a little junior? All right, help me to lead a little junior to Christ. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's the barista at Starbucks, maybe it's a coworker, but just pray, God, would you use me to lead one person to Christ this summer? Okay? All right, bow your heads, and I'm gonna give you about 30 seconds to pray that prayer, and I'm gonna pray for us. Just pray that prayer. God, would you help me to lead one person to Jesus this summer? Father, we come to an omnipotent, almighty, all-wise, all-knowing God. Thank you for what we've seen tonight in the person and work of Jesus, in the gospel, and the gospel does change everything. And we wanna pray as a people. Thanks for what we've been able to see. Thanks for the baptisms. Thanks for the life change. Thanks for the stories. But our prayer, each of us individually, watching at home, here at the campuses, God, would you help me as a Christ follower to lead one person to Jesus this summer? God, before the month of August ends, you're doing 10,000 things around me. I only know about three of them. But God, in the midst of all your providence, all your sovereignty, would you help me for the glory of God to lead one person to Jesus this summer. And we pray it in his name, amen.